Welcome to America This Week. I'm Matt Taibbi. And I'm Walter Kern. And this week in America This Week, normally this is the time where I tell you there's a print version of America This Week. There is not going to be a print version of America This Week because, um, as you probably will have observed by now, there's something going on on Twitter that I'm engaged with instead. And... Um, for a variety of reasons, I can't really talk about uh, the story behind that or, or the specifics um, of what's going on on Twitter or today and the Twitter files here. Um, but we can talk, I guess, in sort of in general about some things that led up to uh, this moment and uh, how we feel about where free speech is and whether this is going to be, you know, an important thing for the country in some way uh, or what it's going to mean. Uh, I, you know, I think I think this is this is going to be an interesting story because the, the reactions are kind of unpredictable. Are people going to be just more mad at the current owner, owner of Twitter or um, are they going to be more questioning of the decision, for instance, to uh, suppress the Hunter Biden story? It'll be interesting to say. Well, is there anyone who, uh, besides uh, Sam Harris, who, who, who positively affirms the wisdom of suppressing the Hunter Biden thing? I mean, I've seen people say, oh, we didn't know that it was real. I've seen people say, you know, it couldn't be verified. But aside from Harris, I haven't heard a full-throated defense of why we should um, take legitimate news and not report it. It's funny. I was in a debate the other night and this came up. And Michelle Goldberg, the columnist for uh, the New York Times, talked about how um, at the time, you know, they had reason to believe it might be a disinformation campaign. And then this, the moderator of the event also used that word disinformation campaign because it was like 2016. And they, they, I guess the idea was th there was some rationale in not wanting to repeat the mistakes of 2016. but. For me, that that that, that just uh, demonstrates the carryover of this myth that what happened in 2016 was disinformation. It was it was information. Uh, wait, wait, wait a second. Are, let 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 me rewind here. You're saying that it was argued that the disinformation practiced against the Trump campaign was of such concern to people at the New York Times, etc., who actually went along with it. That they're now wondering whether. The... No, 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 no. What they were saying was the disinformation, disinformation that was practiced against Hillary in 2016 made. Them... What was that? I don't remember. Remember the, the leaking of the WikiLeaks stuff, which wasn't disinformation. That was all exact... true. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I thought that was information. Exactly. Um... Exactly. Uh, so it was argued that. Uh, they, I guess the rationale was Twitter wanted to uh, avoid um, the appearance of that, of that same kind of mistake. First of all, I didn't see any evidence of that. But uh, again, I can't really get into it. But but secondly, it wasn't misinformation. It wasn't misinformation then and it wasn't mis uh, misinformation or disinformation in this case. The New York Post may have gone out in a limb a little. I think maybe that could be argued. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell in the debate talked about how he claimed one of the, one of the authors uh, tried to take a name off the byline on that story. Um, 
I didn't I didn't check that afterward, but you know, nonetheless, it's all been it's been borne out. I mean, it's been borne out by their own papers, Politico. Um, yeah, no, the, the the CBS story that came out was was so bizarre. It's like it's been like so many stories in recent uh, in this recent era. It, you know, two two years too late, they come out and admit something. Um, you know, the puberty blockers have may may have lasting health effects. That was the big. Uh, bombshell story in the new york times that came out about six years keeping after kids keeping kids out of school may affect their uh learning process and capabilities later in life they i think they had admitted right that right when... and and people might be upset about it yeah yeah right well, so I, you know you have to pardon my confusion because this disinformation word i thought applied only to false information not right. just you know, not just the information that they find politically inconvenient, but to rewind your saying that there was concern that they didn't want to repeat the WikiLeaks situation, which wasn't a situation in my mind, but simply the leaking of actual information. Right, right. Well, that's what was argued at the at the debate. The the you know the the actual reasoning twitter's actual reasoning was was a significantly weirder and again i think i have to refer you to my twitter feed for what what those things were but um but let's just say basically there was some confusion um about well let's pull back and talk about some things that i think people are confused about in this country about what's appropriate for reporting and what's not mm-hmm. um one thing that's commonly argued about um, when they talk about people like Julian Assange or Ed Snowden or whoever is that, oh, they stole the material, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or, uh, you know, it's not legitimate if a journalist publishes stolen material. I think a lot of, a lot of Americans actually believe that. They, they don't know that the Supreme Court has pretty firmly ruled legal to publish stolen stuff, but it's leaked into this sort of modern consciousness of censorious people that there are all these things, these, these restrictions on journalism and on on publishing things that are legitimate that really aren't, you know? And well, the way that the way WikiLeaks was made illicit was by suggesting that the, entity which stole it was Russia itself. And therefore, you know, it, it wasn't so much just that it was stolen, but it was stolen by our enemies to use against us. And right. that's what they tr- that's what they tried to play again with the Russian. I mean, with the Hunter Biden stuff, because it was specifically supposed to be Russian personages or, or, or agents that had that had somehow either stolen this stuff or made it up. It was never clear what we were to believe of you know, of the Hunter Biden stuff. Uh, right. And, but, but even still, can you imagine, you know, 30 years ago, I mean, if it's true, right. <laughs> I mean, I think that would have been the norm once upon a time. And now there's this squeamishness about it, which I sort of get, I mean, um, you, you wouldn't, you don't necessarily want to be a pawn in some intelligence scheme. Uh, but look, those those WikiLeaks emails were real, and oh, and we're also talking in both cases about the presidency of the United States. 
you know, we're, we're, we're not we're not talking about, you know, scurrilous uh, charges against, you know, Hollywood movie stars or, you know, uh, celebrities of some kind. We're talking about the wannabe commander in chief in both cases, whether it was Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden. And uh, I mean, we, we don't have a very good read on the situation because in both cases, the quote disinformation went against a Democratic candidate. Um, and uh, but but we do know that disinformation that goes against a Republican candidate, Donald Trump, resulted in, you know, an all fired giant, you know, Mueller investigation and nonstop cable news chatter. I mean, there there was there was no such shyness and and, right. and scrupulousness surrounding the thought that Donald Trump had peed on a Russian prostitute, even though its origins were as murky and bullshit as they come. <laughs> right, exactly. They were even known to be such at the beginning. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, I saw I saw that in your debate, or at least in your notes around your debate in Toronto, the audience should know what this was. This was a, a venerable debate, the monk debates as monk called? debates, yeah. Yeah. Before a before an audience of, you know, highly analytic and critical people who wanted to know whether or not the media should be trusted. That was what was to be debated, was it not? Yeah, the resolution was, uh, the question was, be it resolved, do not trust mainstream media. And it was um, author Douglas Murray, the War in the West mm -hmm. uh, author, um, and myself against um, Malcolm Gladwell and Michelle Goldberg. And it... Uh, it got, they got really nasty, really quick. Hmm? I hear they've got their butts kicked, right? I mean, you won't say it, but I will. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I actually, I, I got mad enough that I'm not, I'm not above a little gloating in this one. It, it, it got really, really dirty and nasty, really quick. Um, and I, I guess I wasn't prepared for it. I'm not. I'm sort of not a professional debater of the sort that Murray is. Murray is clearly a pro. Like he knows exactly how to, you know, raise and lower the temperature. Whereas I just I sit there looking like I want to strangle somebody, which is maybe not a good look for uh, debates. But um, it, it got really strange. So so what happened in this one was I started off the debate and really early on there's this offhand line where i talk about how you know once upon a time the commercial strategy of tv news was to go for the whole audience the evening broadcast you know was was broadcast at dinner time was designed to be consumed by everybody your right-wing uncle to the lefty teenager and then i said the system had flaws but uh making an effort to talk to everybody had benefits for one, it inspired more trust. And then I mentioned that Gallup polls twice showed Walter Cronkite of CBS to be the most trusted person in America, which I said probably wouldn't happen today, right? That would never happen today. So it was a small point, which was basically what I was saying is instead of demographic hunting, which is what we do now, right? Lefties right. go after lefties, righties go after righties, and that's, that's it. You know, trying to make an effort to, to get everybody has has some benefits for, for the media um don't you hate the fact that now we have to say common sense things as though they're you know 
revelations from <laughs> mystic texts. I think right. maybe trying to get people all together in a democracy, understanding the same basic facts is kind of good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Like it's like it's counterintuitive to want to uh, have more than half the audience. Like I, that part I never understood either. And, and especially, um, you know, we're, we're both, I think, writers before we are media people and oh yeah i would never under what what writer starts off saying all right i'm gonna rule out 50 percent of the readership because you know that, that's gonna be a smart move for me <laughs> like, like right, who, right. who does that well not from our generation but it, i i hear you were accused of a kind of nostalgia for a for a 1950s world one when we walter cronkite sits above all the other voices and distinctiveness so, know, so speaking from privilege exactly so you know in in his first rebuttal gladwell um brought this up and the first time he said it i thought okay that might that might land when he, uh, and here's what he said i think he said um i was greatly amused by the affection matt taibbi has for the age of walter cronkite in that moment, the mainstream media was populated entirely by white men from elite schools. Then he goes on, he, he, he went on and on and on. To, to, he kept mentioning it through the night. Here's some more quotes. I just wanted to make a short list of the people who are not spoken to by journalists in the 1950s and 1960s. Black people, women, poor people, gay people, people with mildly left-wing views. Then he says, when Matt... talking about women? My mom loved Walter Cronkite. Come on. <laughs> When Matt and Doug speak about mainstream media, they're um, they're acting as if there's a big room in which everyone gathers every morning and makes up the agenda for the day and people fly in from the big news networks and someone from CBC comes down and this cabal of high-minded, well-paid, elite, white journalists, some of them the ones Matt seems to have such affection for. Uh, and then he goes, Matt, I understand that you do have this wonderful nostalgia for the way things used to be. This is like after an hour. Uh, but I think you need to back check some of your nostalgic notions about the wonderful world of the 50s. And he goes on and on. Then the last the last time he did it. Um, so all you did was mention Walter Cronkite and he throws this giant grab bag of friggin' you know, cultural accusations at you and makes you answer to the 1950s and every other sin of the mid-century America. Exactly. And the funny thing is those two polls, they were in like 1972 and 1985, I think. Um, mm -hmm. I was born in 1970, you know, like I, I don't remember uh, the era that he's talking about. But he kept going back to it. And then... Um, the really funny one, he, he had this big dismount at the, I think it was sort of toward the end. He said, what would restore the trust of Matt and Doug in mainstream media? With Matt, the answer is obvious. He would like it if the world resembled 1955 again. That would fill him with joy, like more stories on the Hunter Biden laptop. Isn't that sort of ironic considering what's happening today? Um, I think they would be happy. So, they... so, so st let's stop a second. The question on the Hunter Biden laptop isn't, whether it's real or not, but who it fills with joy. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I, 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 thought, I thought originally the question was whether it was real or not. But then once it's proved real, it can further be dismissed by feel it, filling the wrong people with joy. I guess. <laughs>
Yeah, and another part of the debate, he tried to he tried to say that the Trump Russia story was uh, just the Twitter fixation of people on the right. Um, Holy shit, man! As if it was Rachel not- Maddow made tens of millions of dollars <laughs> off that damn thing. I mean, I I remember I, uh, just to stop. I went on a three month road trip during the Mueller investigation, and I I vowed to turn off the radio news for three months. And so as I left Las Vegas in at the end of February on this road trip, I heard something about how Trump was finally cornered. Mueller had him. Da, 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 da. It was going to be the greatest expose of all time. And then when I and I turned the radio off for three months and when I turned it back on, they were saying the same damn thing. Nothing had changed. And my sense was they had been talking about it nonstop, wall to wall during the whole intervening three months. All 24 hours of every day on every channel, right? I mean, yeah. for years. And then, Oh, my God. I was in a Hollywood writer's room for part of the thing. Mm-hmm. And I was sitting next to someone who was, you know, one of those Mueller time people. Like, she almost was buying merch. I mean, literally out of candles, yeah, like buying merch based on, you know, the coming the coming uh, inquisition of Donald Trump. And I kept saying, you know, this stuff never changes. And and I've been around for a while and I can tell when things are moving to a climax and we're just getting the same, you know, the same headlines every day. This is going to not go anywhere. And I also have some insight into where the information came from. And it was as though I had destroyed this person's, you know, religion, um, <laughs> you know, to say that it was merely a Twitter craze is ri- like saying Christianity was just, you know, some argument among hippies in Jerusalem. And, and not only that, that it was a right wing Twitter craze. That was what was funny. It was- oh, yeah. The other thing is, is that um, Walter Cronkite, you know, usually those who want us to believe in the media, those who are arguing Malcolm Gladwell's position, hold up Walter Cronkite as a kind of god or avatar of the days when America all, you know, was sensible and listened to the Tiffany Network, the sort of establishment liberal CBS News, which held life together. And and so for them to turn on him and throw him overboard, the guy who single-handedly ended the Vietnam War, kind of, to, to <laughs> some of those, you know, by, by, by expressing skepticism one day, uh, you know, uh, that we were going to have a total victory. What, Sir Cronkite's in the bin with what, you know, uh, you know, Father Coughlin or something? I, uh, I, I guess, yeah, or uh, McCarthy. McCarthy. Or, yeah, yeah. Uh, Who's another George Wallace? I don't know. I mean, it, it, it was it was something like that, you know, basically. Uh, so he, he he keeps piling it on, but then there's this amazing, amazing sort of pseudo ironic dismount at the end. After he says that the, you know this this would fill me with joy, that's the only thing that would fill me with joy. Um, he, he he briefly makes a serious point. He says, "I think that they would be happier." if they felt that the composition of prestigious journalistic institutions more closely reflected the full range of ideological attitudes in American public issues. That is actually a serious proposition, right? Interesting point. What he first did was he mocked and lampooned and expanded on your little position to the point where, you know, he made it ridiculous. And then he inserted himself the serious part in it, which was the only part you ever wished to assert in the first place. Exactly. But then, but then he craps all over it. 
Uh, oh. This is great. So this whole idea of, you know, maybe having media that reflects the full spectrum of attitudes. Right. Just I don't mean to make light of it at all, but uh, it is one that makes me a little uncomfortable because I don't think that you can ultimately say that trust in institutions is reserved solely for institutions that perfectly match the characteristics of the general population. It is like saying we don't trust kindergarten teachers because kindergarten teachers are overrepresented with people having an enormous amount of patience for the temper tantrums of four-year-olds. I mean, they're an, they're an extraordinary and very specific subgroup of the population that performs very well in that particular task more generally. So, Did he actually address any of your points? It seems like basically what he did was he, he came up with, you know, surrogates for your points, he, he, uh, pretty weak strawmen that he blew down. But uh, uh, kindergarten teachers, what? I mean, so. So, so re- this, is, this is the whole, like, you know, you wouldn't want your uncle doing full cavity surgery or something like, you know, open heart surgery uh, argument. You know, he's 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 basically saying you can't judge it. You know, you can't just say institutions should perfectly met. They shouldn't perfectly match the characteristics of the general population. That's not desirable. Wait um, a second. I thought his old argument was that was that <laughs> exactly. Walter Cronkite didn't speak to the full uh, spectrum of America. But exactly. now but now that's a good thing. Right. He, 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 he just two seconds before got, got finished arguing the exact opposite. Then he goes to this whole thing about how, um, you know, teach, uh, t- journalists are like kindergarten teachers who have an extraordinary level of patience for the temper tantrums of four year olds, which. Tell me what you which think. It, I, I think there's well, a that's little a, that's, bit just of... a, that's a Freudian slip. I mean, that just suggests that his vision of the American population that doesn't read Malcolm Gladwell in New York, New Yorkers, that they're a bunch of ill-tempered infants who need a nap, you know? Right. I, I, I thought, you know, when I was looking out at the crowd, when, as soon as he started talking about the general population, and then he, yeah. then he said, said the thing about four-year-olds, I could see people thinking, is he saying we're four-year-olds? Cause it, it, he doesn't, it's not directly said that way, but it, 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 it it's kind of implied, isn't it? I don't know. Uh, Matt, anybody who's a screenwriter knows that the imagery and the and the anecdotes that are used in these things bear the real tale. And there's a kind of patronizing attitude there right. that would put anyone from the 1950s, uh, you know, in the corner in terms of arrogance. Uh, the big problem with the 1950s was that it wasn't it didn't speak to the diverse range of American experience. The big problem now is that we are expected to speak to the diverse range of American experience. That seems to be the argument that 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 now we have um, sort of cultivated a priesthood that uh, is properly illuminated and, and enlightened. And we should now leave it to that group to sort of take up the patronizing but wrongly executed mission of the 1950s. Right. Right, exactly. Like we've basically just sort of switched uh, exclusivity models. Like you know, and, and I've always said this. I said this in my book, Hate Inc. That you know, the old model was no panacea. Like it was all white guys in every newsroom up until a certain point, 
that's undeniable. Uh, and not only was that sort of morally wrong, but it caused them to miss all kinds of shit. Like, you know, they, they, they were way late on everything from the civil rights movement to uh, women's rights, you know, all, all those stories, among other things, because they were, it just wasn't part of, you know, things that they thought about. Uh, but now, you know, but back then, there, there was a little bit more class diversity, right? Yes, like, yes. You, you were, I mean, I remember this as a kid, journalists were much, much more likely to be kind of cast offs from some other profession or, you know, the, the sons and daughters of electricians or whatever it was. Uh, and they were, you know, their attitude was definitely more simpatico with like the ordinary middle class person than than with politicians. You know, like in, fa in, in fact, Matt, you know, I, I'm eight years older than you. And I and, and though I grew up in Minnesota, we got the pa at rural Minnesota, we got the, you know, Minneapolis and St. Paul papers every day. And then I, you know, I went to New York at an early age and I've been all over the country. And in those days, the popular newspaper columnists, the Mike Royko, the Jimmy Breslin, the Pete Hamill, uh, they always channeled the sort of scorn of the average reader for the uh, hoity-toity, sometimes corrupt, uh, um, double-dealing elites. And so, in fact, the, the star newspaper columnists of the, of the mid-century American, you know, uh, journalistic miracle when everybody did sort of trust Walter Cronkite usually depended on these these characters who spoke for the people. And even though they tended to be Irishmen or right. whatever, you know, they, they kind of resembled cops in some ways in those days. Big A lot of them cop. were like sons of cops, right? Right, right. They, yeah. they were all streetwise. You couldn't really speak to the readership of these papers without at least pretending to be a guy who had drinks with the, you know, with the detectives and hung out with the gangsters and so on. Well, um, certainly in the case of Jimmy Breslin, there was no pretending going on. I mean, like, you know, all those journalists were wasted every single day. I mean, those guys hung out at the lion's head in New York and, you know, were drinking Boilermakers every, every afternoon. And yeah, every market had somebody like that in Boston. It was Mike Barnacle. Remember he, right, right. he, he came up that way. And the, the tradition of the person who kind of spoke in the vernacular of the ordinary person was le was a sort of a mandatory element of every major market newspaper. And then one by one, they started disappearing. And I always felt bad about this because what they ended up doing really was replacing people like that with people like, you know, Maureen Dowd. Yeah. <laughs> Or, or even me, or Thomas Frank. You know what I mean? Like it was the, it was somebody who had the right politics, but was more upper class, right? Went had gone right. to good schools. You know right. what I'm saying? Uh, and now there's none of those people. Like who, who's like that in media now? Who's who's kind of a streetwise populist gadflies? I would call them right um, in some ways. And and, and they usually were. They guess, usually were. Yeah. They were sympathetic to union uh, politics. They, you know, uh, they usually had some time for the political machines, even though they held their feet to the fire. You know, 
they had a democratic flavor. Most of those columnists, for sure. I mean, uh, I, I mean, Democratic Party flavor. Um, but uh, so interestingly, um, the new priesthood, the one that doesn't and on purpose doesn't resemble America, because America maybe is for four year olds now wants our trust based on what? I mean, what was he arguing or and, and what was Michelle arguing in this debate should be the basis of our our trust in the mainstream media? Their accuracy? Because well, yeah, that was one of the things he talked about, the sort of haloed processes of, you know, um, of of the mainstream media. You know, we we, fa- we fact check everything and um <laughs> that's kind of bullshit i gotta tell you fact checking has has you know now that it's sort of fact checking trademark you know it's a business that that third parties engage in but i having worked at time magazine and having been part of this establishment i can tell you the idea that they're still riding on the coattails of that you know intense fact checking is kind of ridiculous it doesn't well, happen in the same way especially when you've got you know, these two gigantic cancerous growths on, on your record, you know, from WMD and Russiagate in, in recent years. I mean, if the whole business spends years on end chasing fake stories and that gets past your, your fact-checking process, that's like, that's like a million Jason Blair cases, right? I mean, right. Uh, so... You, you can't put too much stock in process if the process doesn't produce results. And then there's the other thing where after the WMD episode, what do they do? All the people who got it right were basically exiled from traditional media, you know, from Chris Hedges to uh, Phil Donahue to even Jesse Ventura. If you're hearing this message, you're listening to the free version of America This Week. To hear the rest of our conversation, please subscribe to TK News at taibi.substack.com.